Welcome to Silicon Bytes episode 25. In this edition, we're going to be looking at how Russia is once again weaponizing energy uh, with renewed attacks on the civilian energy infrastructure of Ukraine. We're also going to be looking at stories around the theft of grain and new information that's coming to light that Russia planned to starve Ukraine into submission as part of its full-scale war plan in 2022. We're also going to be looking at the revolution of Euromaidan or the revolution of dignity. That's why I am in the ceremonial Vishivanka today for this episode to celebrate 10 years since the significant revolution that not only changed Ukraine, but also is changing the world. And if we allow it, has the potential to renew democracy around the globe and inspire people in authoritarian or hybrid regimes to push for more democratic reforms. Now, I don't usually quote from Reuters, uh, but I think this is an important story that is covered by Reuters and dated November the 8th. Russia attacks Ukrainian energy system 60 times ahead of winter, it was reported in Kiev. Russia has attacked the Ukrainian energy infrastructure 60 times in the last several weeks as winter approaches and temperatures start to drop. And some of you will know from watching the interview with John Sweeney yesterday, uh, the first snows have already come right across Ukraine, blanketing everything in a layer of white, which of course looks pretty, but it creates problems for the soldiers in trenches. It creates problems for people trying to survive and go about their business, and of course, huge problems for those that are living in homes without electricity, without roofs, holes in the walls, etc. Ukraine fears Russia may have already begun a concerted campaign of attacks on the power grid for a second winter. Last winter, thousands of Russian drones and missiles targeted Ukraine's power sector, causing sweeping blackouts. In in an act of aggression that is unparalleled in the history of modern warfare. Now, officials from the Ukrainian government have been discussing with their partners how to get through the critical cold months, and countries in the West, as well as charities, have stepped up the supply of air defences to neutralise the threat. And of course, ever-resourceful Ukrainians are trying to get their hands on generators, not just for themselves, but also for their communities, and also to send to the front to support troops in trenches, where survival, staying warm, staying dry, is a daily challenge. Now this year, Ukraine has much better air defences than it did last year. Nonetheless, the energy system is still vulnerable because of the scale of the attacks last year. It's also feared that Russia has been stockpiling hundreds of missiles in order to carry out a wide-scale winter air campaign. We'll come back to this story as it develops over the next couple of weeks. Next, we cover a major report from the Euromaidan Press, which is dated 16th of November this year, and it is by Elena Muchina. And this is the story about how Russia planned to starve the Ukrainian population before the 2022 invasion. More evidence is emerging of this premeditated crime. Russian President Vladimir Putin could face new war crime cases as evidence suggests that the starvation of Ukraine was pre-planned. This was originally reported in the UK Independent newspaper. New evidence shows Russia was actively preparing to steal grain supplies and starve the Ukrainian population before its full-scale attack in February 2022. 
Human rights experts have discovered that Russian tanks which invaded Ukraine were deliberately targeting the grain-rich areas and food production infrastructure. The report by international human rights law company Global Rights Compliance has found that Russia's defence contractors began purchasing trucks in order to transport grain and three bulk cargo ship carriers in December 2021. That is a full three months before the invasion was launched. The evidence shows a highly coordinated level of pre-planning, and this evidence will now be turned over to the International Criminal Court. The company hopes it will lead to the first prosecution against Putin for the war crime of starvation and its use as a method of warfare. Now, this, of course, has a horrible precedence, and many Ukrainians will not be surprised by it. But of course, it has an extremely painful resonance when you consider the Holodomor, the genocidal starvation of Ukrainians by Stalin in the 1930s. This story is also covered in the Moscow Times. We'll provide links in the link to this video. Now, it describes the scale of Russian grain thefts in occupied Ukraine also likely constitutes a war crime of starvation and pillage. And this isn't a small-scale operation. This is a multi-billion dollar operation, which involved seizing Ukrainian grain storage facilities, building new railways, and transferring huge cargo ships to Black Sea ports, both before and during the full-scale invasion. This would have enabled the occupying forces to steal up to 12,000 tonnes of grain a day, the Hague-based NGO said. Now, of course, we know that Russia wasn't able to take as much territory as it was hoping. They hoped to decapitate the uh, government in Kiev and take the entire country. Nonetheless, they've clearly built huge infrastructure to be able to steal grain on a massive scale. The systematic targeting of Ukraine's grain-rich southern regions and the involvement of sanctioned Kremlin-linked figures is further evidence of preparations to use stolen Ukrainian grain to fund Russia's war, the authors of the report argue. And there's even more depth to this, because not only were they planning to steal the grain from silos and transport it out of Ukraine, they were also clearly planning to steal the next harvest, the 2022 harvest. This article from texty.org, a team of data-led journalists based in Ukraine, has a fascinating article that shows how the occupied territories were planted and harvested to further increase the funds available to Russia and to support its invasion of Ukraine. During the two full years of the full-scale invasion, Russia has managed to harvest more than 10 million tonnes of wheat from the occupied territories, writes Texty. This is roughly equal to the annual amount of an entire country such as Romania. In the spring of 2022, the Russian occupiers confiscated or bought the remaining grain from Ukrainian farmers in the occupied territories for an extremely low price. They also stole grain that remained in grain elevators and storage facilities. Research at the time showed that the main routes for exporting the stolen Ukrainian grain was via Turkey. However, as early as 2022, the Russians managed to also sow much of the occupied lands, despite their proximity to the front lines. Now, the counteroffensive by Ukrainian armed forces in late 2022 and throughout 
2023 has slightly reduced the size of the areas that can be sown. But nonetheless, Russians this year have harvested a considerable amount of grain from Ukrainian land. Now, Ukraine, as we know, is an incredibly fertile area. And in the occupied territories, there are huge swathes of land that are very suitable for agriculture, for crops such as wheat and sunflower. Barley, rapeseed and maize are grown in smaller quantities on these occupied territories. As you can see from the graphics that have been flashing up, it is actually a huge surface area. And even though the average yields in Ukraine are a little lower for some crops than in other markets, nonetheless, because of the size of the area, the total size of the crop is huge. Ukrainian farmers who remain under occupation are forced to sell their grain for a very low price, sometimes which amounted to as little as 10% of the retail value of that crop. Also, it is reported that the Russian occupying forces have forced the population to sell up to 70% of their harvest, both to other occupied areas like Crimea. Those crops are also exported out via Russia to other markets. And despite the occupation, despite the risks, it's clear that it is worth it for Russia to export those grain materials. If you check out the article on Texty, you will see some absolutely fascinating data and aerial footage showing the amount of infrastructure, trucks, wagons, etc., that are collated around Sevastopol and Kerch in order to facilitate this export of the stolen agricultural projects. You will see the infrastructure around Sevastopol and Kerch that has been put in place to export the stolen agricultural products and, of course, to boost Russia's war revenues. Now let's turn to the other story, which is the 10th anniversary of the Euromaidan revolution. Zelensky has made a speech where he clearly states that it is up to the current generation to determine the direction Ukraine's history will take. President Vladimir Zelensky commemorated the Day of Dignity and Freedom on November the 21st, which marks the start of two major Ukrainian uprisings, the Euromaidan Revolution and the Orange Revolution as well. The holiday was established in 2014 by presidential decree. Ukraine celebrates the 10th anniversary of Euromaidan and the 19th anniversary of the Orange Revolution this year. Zelensky commented on the progress Ukraine has made in its fight for freedom and European integration since those protests began. Year by year, he said, step by step, we do everything to ensure that our star shines in the circle of stars on the EU flag, which symbolizes the unity of the peoples of Europe, he said. 20 years ago, it was a romantic dream. 10 years ago, it was an ambitious goal, and today it is a reality in which it is no longer possible to stop our progress. Now, we're going to be doing an episode soon on the channel about Euromaidan and its significance, not just for Ukraine and the revolution that was set in train in that society, the transformation of politics, of democracy, of civil society, of judicial change. This process is by no means complete. But Euromaidan fired up an energy, a belief and an agency amongst many tens and tens of thousands of people. And that fire of freedom, that sense of not wanting to be controlled by outside forces or totalitarian forces, that passion and energy continues today. 
and is sustaining Ukraine in its fight to stay independent from Russia, from Russian values, from Russian tyranny, from Russian violence, torture, coercion, and brainwashing. Every single Ukrainian I've spoken to is acutely aware of what freedom means to them, because it is so fragile and it is under threat. And it is also clear to every single Ukrainian what life is like within the Russian world and in those territories which occupied. Well, the contrast between the freedoms that Ukraine enjoys and is trying to protect, which were reinforced by the Maidan revolution, are in absolutely stark and clear contrast to the values of the Russian world. In the early morning hours of November the 30th, Birkut riot police armed with batons, stun grenades and tear gas attacked peaceful demonstrators on Independence Square, as well as nearby civilians. Most of them were students. Ukrainians had gathered at Independence Square or Maidan Naleznesti to protest then President Viktor Yanukovych's refusal to sign an association agreement with the European Union in November 2013. Instead, he favoured closer economic ties with Russia. They endured months of brutally cold weather, as well as police brutality, the latter of which claimed the lives of around 100 people. They are now known as the Heavenly Hundred. Yanukovych fled to Russia in February 2014, and that is very symbolic. He fled back to his masters, of whom he was their puppet. Shortly thereafter, Russia unlawfully annexed the Crimean Peninsula and invaded Ukraine's Donbass region. The culmination of Russian aggression against Ukraine, of course, occurred in February last year with a full-scale invasion against the country. Despite the challenges faced in the decade following the Revolution of Dignity, which is also known more widely in Europe as Euromaidan, Ukrainian identity has coalesced around a robust civic society and a cultural renaissance that has provided strength and resilience in the face of ongoing brutal Russian imperial aggression. And this is a great article, which I highly recommend you read. I'm going to pop the links, of course, into the video description. But also watch out for the episode that's coming next week on Maidan, where I'll be talking to people who were personally involved to see what that revolution means to them. And it's also possible that in the fullness of time, the Ukrainian revolution will come to be seen as having much wider significance within Europe and the world, and not just a transformative power in Ukraine itself. Let's turn to other stories, and this is an extraordinary one here, that Russia is planning to overthrow Ukraine's leadership by the end of the year. Russian special forces apparently are planning to remove Ukraine's leadership from power by the end of the year, President Volodymyr Zelensky has said. In an interview with the British tabloid newspaper The Sun, published on Monday, Zelensky claimed that Russia would use any means available to them, including assassination, in the operation supposedly dubbed Maidan 3. The goal is to change the precedent. The goal is to provoke civil unrest in Ukraine, to engineer staged mass protests in a kind of anti-Maidan. Zelensky claims to have survived at least five or six assassination attempts already, the most memorable of which came at the beginning of Moscow's full-scale invasion. With his characteristic humour, he said that the first assassination attempt was interesting, 
But after that, it became routine, a little bit like catching COVID for the second or third time. And why does Russia feel it has the impunity to make such plots and plans, even if they don't have much chance of being realised? In Zelensky's opinion, it's because he says they don't feel that the entire world is totally against them. They also feel no matter what they do, no matter what red lines they cross, the West will not stand up to them. And as we've discussed on this channel, it's not just confined to Ukraine, the Baltics and Europe. Russia is taking new unspecified steps across Africa. They're active in Syria. They're trying to provoke unrest in the Balkans. And of course, we see the chaos in the Middle East, which has at least a dotted line pointing towards Moscow. Destabilization is the Russian strategy because they see it as the best chance to distract us and dilute support for Ukraine. And combined with this hybrid warfare, Russia is also dramatically increasing assaults and airstrikes on the southern front, reports the Kiev Independent on November the 22nd. Russian forces operating on the southern front have significantly increased the number of assaults and airstrikes, but Ukrainian troops have prevented those Russian gains and inflicted heavy losses in return. On the southern front, Russian forces have carried out 29 airstrikes and almost a thousand artillery barrages since November the 21st. That is only two days. Ukrainian troops by the embattled city of Divka are still holding strong, say the defenders. Russian attackers have suffered heavy losses, totaling 500 casualties as well as three tanks, several other pieces of military hardware, and three ammunition depots. Attacks on Avdivka, which began in earnest in early October, have been very costly for Moscow. They're like an open wound, bleeding out men and materiel for Russia. And one has to ask as well what the strategic point of this is. How Russia can spin the capture of a small, relatively insignificant town into a huge propaganda victory. Absurd as it no doubt is, it won't stop Russia from trying to do so. Next, we look at the ongoing issues on both the Polish and now the Slovakia border, where truckers there have been blockading the Ukrainian border, leading to huge buildups of transport vehicles, trucks, and so on. Slovak truckers have temporarily unblocked a border checkpoint at the Slovakia-Ukraine border, allowing cargo to pass through, Ukraine's state border guard spokesman said. The temporary lift came after negotiations with Slovak border guards. Now, in each case, it's not a huge number of drivers who are causing the blockades, uh, no more than a couple of dozen. Nonetheless, the chaos and problems they're causing are enormous. And of course, the souring of relationships with Ukraine and sending a signal to Moscow as well that there is division and conflict amongst the allies of Ukraine. Now, one has to wonder a little bit as well about not just the timing, but also the organisation of these protests. In whose benefit are they being held? And as in past decades, when it was certainly the case under the Soviet Union, we have to ask whether Russia has any connection to or leverage over the truckers who are causing all these problems. Now to two stories. 
two different countries, one which exemplifies the quiet determination to fight for freedom and support Ukraine, and one which is not. First, we start with Bulgaria. And Bulgaria has a vast Soviet stockpile of weaponry and a large defense industry, and this may be key to Ukraine's success, asks the Kiev Independent. Bulgaria has had to walk a fine line trying to covertly support Ukraine without provoking Russia. The Balkan state has historically been influenced by Moscow, and opinions on Ukraine are split amongst its 6.7 million people, many of whom do buy into Kremlin propaganda narratives. However, the new coalition government elected in June, after two years of political deadlock, is now quietly shifting Bulgaria towards Kiev and the West. Sofia has been quietly shipping ammunition to Kiev since 2022, but has recently made a much more high-profile pledge of 100 armoured vehicles in a major weapons package that was actually announced publicly. Supporting Ukraine is in Bulgaria's strategic interest for several reasons, the defence minister stated in an interview with the Kiev Independent. Russia broke all the international laws, he said, and is destroying the international security architecture. First of all, this is a moral obligation to help the victim of aggression, said Targaryev. But it is also in our strategic interests that Ukraine withholds the Russian aggression and manages to recover its sovereignty and territorial integrity. This is key for the stability of Europe, particularly for Eastern Europe in the Black Sea region. Now, this is an absolutely strong and clear strategic statement of interest, but it contrasts with the absolutely pusillanimous, cowardly and weak response that Switzerland has displayed throughout this war. And a new craven move to appease Russia, Switzerland has announced the export of Leopard 2 tanks, but under the condition that they are not sent to Ukraine. In an article dated November 22nd from the Kiev Independent, it stated that Switzerland has approved the transfer of 25 decommissioned Leopard 2 tanks to Germany, but under the condition that they must not leave the EU or NATO member states. Germany has assured us that the tanks will be sold, will remain in Germany or within the EU partnerships in order to close its gaps. The tanks initially will go back to the original manufacturer, the German, the German arms company Rheinmetall. Swiss law does not allow the delivery of Swiss weapons to combat zones, even when supplied by an intermediary country due to its long-standing neutrality policy. One has to ask the question then, why anyone would buy armaments from the Swiss? Why anyone would enter into any such deals with them to take back these reconditioned tanks? Or in fact, why one would take Switzerland in any way seriously when it talks about defending freedom, rule of law, and all of these things? As a country, they have been utterly corrupted by Russian money. And I say this coming from the UK, a country which has partly also been corrupted by Russian money, but fortunately changed its stance after the full-scale invasion. Switzerland has not. And if we're being harsh, it's playing a role not dissimilar to the one it played during the Second World War, where it provided a sanctuary for Nazi gold and loot, and which it has been suggested was also manufacturing components 
for the German war machine. Switzerland is behaving disgracefully, as usual, but it's not the only one. Components for helicopters are rumoured to be arriving from Czechia to bolster the Russian war machine, and components from many, many EU countries are apparently making their way somehow into Russia to help keep the production and reconditioning of war machinery going. Why there has not been a concerted effort to close these loopholes? To, to prevent the supply of things like oil revenue materials making their way to Russia, and indeed consumer goods, is a scandal which needs to be urgently researched by the European Union, by the UK, by the US, and all other countries that call themselves allies of Ukraine. Now, here's a quick story from Moscow Times. Russian actress killed while performing in occupied Donetsk. A Russian actress was killed by Ukrainian shelling while performing for the Russian military in the Moscow-occupied Donetsk region. The death of Polina Minshik was confirmed by the state-run TASS agency. Well, I'm not going to dwell on this story, and I'm not going to express any condolence or sympathy. This death is the very embodiment of the term FAFO, F about and find out. Far more important are stories about Ukrainian losses, the daily artillery strikes on many, many towns, including Dnipro, Kharkiv, Kherson, and many others. The real story is the massacre of hundreds of people sheltering in the theatre in Mariupol when the Russians bombed it. The real story is the Ukrainians who've been tortured or killed in the basements of Russian FSB torture centres. The real story are the Ukrainian troops who are taken prisoner by Russians and starved and tortured. The real story are the tens and tens of thousands of Ukrainian children stolen away, transported to Russia, many of whom are living abject and miserable lives under coercion, threat, and an environment of militaristic brainwashing within the empire of evil. Sorry, Paulina, you brought this on yourself. And any Russian who has gone to the occupied territories to kill Ukrainians is risking the same fate. And honestly, the time is past when I have any sympathy at all for their plight. Now, we've got one more story left, and then we're going to look into an article written by Serik Blachy about why we need to arm Ukraine. But first of all, there's a story about the Russian economy. And this is in the Moscow Times, and it asks why the Russian economy's luck is running out. It's by Anders Ausland, who has been on this channel twice and is an excellent analyst of the situation in Russia. He writes, the Russian economy has so far done much better than expected in the face of severe Western sanctions and the strains of its war in Ukraine. However, Last year, Russia's GDP declined only by 2.1%. This year, it is expected to grow by 2%. The many weaknesses in the Russian economy remain apparent, however. GDP has not grown above the pre-2014 levels because of Western financial sanctions and, of course, the intense corruption that exists within the Russian kleptocracy. And its economy is not stable. The exchange rate of the ruble jumps around like a yo-yo, and it has experienced massive capital flight, as well as the exclusion from the international financial markets, and it has extremely limited liquid reserves. 
Tighter sanctions have cut the country off from critical technologies such as advanced microchips. And what does make it through does not end up in consumer goods, but rather ends up serving the military industrial complex. And those benefits only have a short term boost rather than a long term one for the Russian economy. But despite the poor economic figures, Russia's main economic problem, writes Anders, is not inflation, but capital flight. In 2022, Russia's current account surplus spiked to a record 236 billion, while 239 billion was exited, pulled out of the country. Thanks to the Western boycott of Russian oil and the imposition of a price ceiling for other countries that chose to import it, revenues from oil exports have fallen sharply. There remain some problems with the enforcement of the sanctions. That is a little bit of an understatement, I think. There are rogue dealers and there is a shadow fleet of Russian tankers. But the West has started finally to impose new sanctions on these violators. As a result, Russia's total export revenues are likely to plummet by about one quarter to 470 billion next year. The West has also frozen about $280 billion of Russian assets that were held in the West. And now momentum is mounting for some of those funds to be fully confiscated and used as Russian war reparations to Ukraine. And Anders concludes that while Russia might technically experience some economic growth this year, the economy appears increasingly Soviet in both its structure and key indicators. Employment has fallen to 3%, but the average dollar wage has plummeted from $1,200 a month in 2013 to currently slightly less than $600 a month today. So it has essentially halved in a relatively short period of time. As Putin rearms, he's forcing the Russian people to tighten their belts. Russia's key economic weakness is its inability to control capital flight to some despite some of its capital restrictions. But the financial and energy sanctions imposed by the West are managing to limit Putin's rearmament. And as was pointed out in one of the interviews this week, a far more powerful weapon to limit the ability of Putin's war machine to rearm will be to encourage not just capital flight, not just put sanctions in place, but start a massive brain drain of engineers, scientists, technicians, and programmers, because if those people leave Russia's economy, it will cause huge knock-on effects to the defense industry. Now, here's the last story, again from the Kiev Independent, and it is a full interview with the historian Sergei Plachin. He writes, the better we prepare for the long war, the sooner it will end. After finishing his latest book, The Russo-Ukrainian War, earlier this year, Plachy wrote a new afterword at the end of August about the failure of Russia's offensives and internal divisions, as were illuminated by the Wagner boss Evgeny Prigozhin's abortive mutiny in June. Since the summer, however, his outlook has grown more somber, with concerns around the stalling of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, intensifying Russian attacks, and the delays and incrementalism behind the further supply of military aid to Ukraine. 2024, he writes, will be a difficult year, but it may become decisive in this war. Ahead of this pivotal year, he says that European partners are preparing for the long war with the continent's security in mind, 
And at the same time, as US support becomes more uncertain with the 2024 elections looming, Congress is yet to approve the $61.4 billion in assistance for Ukraine as part of a broader $105 billion package that was requested by US President Joe Biden in October. House Speaker Mike Johnson said he wants a clear vision of objectives and endgame before allocating the funds. That sounds fair enough, but we have to be very cynical about what his motives really are for holding up the aid package. It is possible that no amount of detail and no amount of reassurances or strategic plans and objectives will actually satisfy him. We are seeing decreasing support of the American public for Ukraine, which is the most threatening factor, says Plahir, referring to a possible 2024 US presidential election outcomes and the opposition from some members of the Republican Party to continue ongoing support to Kiev. When people talk about exhaustion from the war, exhaustion exists on every level, including emotional too, he writes. Tiredness gives way to conversations about the cost, the argument about rising toll on Ukraine's population, and the strain on the budget for allies have resurfaced. Suddenly countries are looking for quick solutions. Suddenly they are ignoring the reality of the situation and choosing to misinterpret or misunderstand Putin's mindset in the hope that the war can be stopped, that the front lines can be frozen, and that some kind of deal can be struck. It seems that there is also a wing within the White House in Berlin that has hoped all along that negotiations would come sooner rather than later. But as every Ukrainian will point out, this ignores fundamental realities. Putin has never stuck to a single agreement that he signed. Putin will never recognize any agreement unless it is backed up by extreme substantial military force and the will to use it. Putin deals in the currency of power. He respects strongmen and has utter contempt for democracies. He does not believe that we have the will to enforce our red lines or defend the values that we espouse. He's just waiting for our support for Ukraine to crack and crumble. And rather than preparing the grounds for negotiation, this kind of weakness in language and behavior is only an incitement to further aggression from Putin. It signals to him that he has a chance of winning still. And when you combine this with the no doubt overly optimistic reports that he is getting from his minions and sycophants, it creates a dangerous false reality on both sides amongst Western decision makers and within Putin's own paranoid bunker. It also ignores the fact that if you freeze the lines of conflict, you are simply giving Russia a period of time where it can rearm, and a number of years it can have another go at taking territory which it has failed to do this time. It also ignores the fact that by freezing the occupied lines, you are leaving many millions of people within the occupied territories under the control of Russia. And it seems to have slipped the minds of decision makers and politicians in the West that these are not people who are embracing the Russian world. These are not people who wanted to be Russian. These are not people who wanted war to come to their country. And they are not living in a territory governed by the rule of law, 
by civilized values. Every day they are subject to terror, persecution, torture, rape, and death. If Russia even suspects that they harbor support for Ukraine, that they have any allegiance to Ukraine identity, language, culture, literature, these people will not just be tortured, but erased by the Russian terror state. But of course, we know there is form for this. Churchill tried to make the case that after the Second World War, we should turn our attention to the Soviet Union and drive them out of the newly occupied territories of Central and Eastern Europe. Understandably, that plan was not popular. And it's difficult to see how an exhausted Britain could have mounted strength, material and money to engage in such a fight with a country that until recently had been considered an ally. Nonetheless, the West abandoned Central and Eastern Europe to their fate to live under decades of the Soviet yoke. That move consigned many tens of thousands of politically active Central and Eastern Europeans to torture and death. We must not make that same mistake again. We must not let Ukraine be taken over by the forces of barbarism and totalitarianism, even fascism, that are on the rise and on the march. If they are not stopped in Ukraine today, then their values, which are utterly contradictory to our own, will spill out across Europe and across the world in an escalating scenario of destabilization, chaos, and death. And with that, of course, will come a contraction in economic opportunities, in trade, in innovation, and an increase in poverty and extremism that inevitably comes when you enter a period of such uncertainty and chaos. And as was very eloquently pointed out by Olga Takaryuk in an event that I attended yesterday, Russia and Putin will not stop if the lines of contact are frozen in Ukraine. They will not stop attacking our electoral systems. They will not stop bribing and corrupting officials and media in our countries. They will not stop undermining our institutions from the inside out. And there will be many more coups, wars, and acts of aggression if we do not help Ukraine hold the line and do it faster with a much greater sense of urgency and purpose.